first reading is from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. I'm reading from the NIV. So Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 25. Um, through chapter 26 to verse 2. Chapter 5, sorry, Matthew 25, 31 through 26, verse 2. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, Churchill. I hope you're doing well in these weird times. Um, I imagine that some are looking at my title today and thinking... Maybe you should go and look at something else on YouTube um, because, you know, it's not the happiest topic. Um, there are some uh, topics of Jesus' life that are fascinating and uh, inviting, even for the doubter. You think of Jesus as the teacher. Um, you know, he taught people to love. He taught against religious hypocrisy and that sort of thing. Even Jesus as healer is okay. Uh, since even if people don't accept the evidence for Jesus' healings, uh, 
evidence that's pretty substantial, by the way. Um, it's it's at least a happy topic, you know. It's uh, about people getting better and flourishing. Even the topic of Jesus as Messiah or Christ has a certain charm. Uh, the word Christ has almost become Jesus' surname. And by the way, uh, I, I did uh, talks on all three of these topics um, back in June for you guys. So I'm sure they're somewhere on your web page. Um, but the topic of Jesus as judge, uh, it's not so inviting, right? Um, it's pretty confronting. And some would say it's a really unfair topic. And the truth is Christians have made some terrible mistakes uh, in this area. I remember in my first week as an assistant minister in the parish of Roseville years ago, I got a phone call asking me to go and meet in the home of this woman. Her name is uh, Judy and she was dying of a very aggressive cancer. She wasn't herself religious, but her next door neighbor was a really committed Christian and um, arranged a kind of spiritual blind date between me and Judy. So I turn up a little bit nervous. I was quite young in my ministry at the time and asked her to tell me her story. And, and she proceeded to tell me that about 40 years earlier, she had walked out of church and never gone back because of a preacher she heard preach on judgment and hell with a smile on his face and she said this image of the smiling preacher who was smug and self-righteous and looked down on everyone else and talked about them going to hell just turned her off the whole thing and she was willing to reconsider christianity she'd always had an inkling that maybe there was something to it but she really wanted to know is there a version of Christianity that can make sense of this idea of judgment? And that's what I want to try and do, if it's okay with you, in our time together. I want to make sense of this really awkward and unpopular topic. And I reckon the first thing to say is that how we feel about the topic of judgment probably largely depends on which side of the justice equation we think we're on? Which side of the justice equation? I mean, if I can put it like this, and I don't mean to be too confronting, think of 15-year-old Tanja. She's a Roma girl uh, trafficked from the Czech Republic to a brothel in Germany. After being brutalized into submission, she services 15 customers a day. And in addition, she's made to pose for images that are shown all around the world on the internet. She slumps into bed at the end of a terrible day and offers the half-hearted prayers she remembers her grandmother taught her. How do you think she feels about judgment? I imagine if she thinks about it, she's praying how long, Lord, until you keep your promise to bring justice? But then again, uh, think of the madam of the brothel where Tanja works. Uh, she convinces herself that Tanja has it better uh, with her than she did uh, in her uh, traveling life. 
or think of the man who uses her services regularly and has convinced himself they have some kind of bond because she's been taught to smile. Or think of the Sydney professional who night after night views Tanja's images online and is sure she enjoys it, sure that she chose it for herself. How do you think they feel about this idea of judgment? I suspect they resent the idea or mock the idea. So my point is how we feel about the judgment of God depends largely on which side of the justice equation we reckon we're on. Now, if, if I can let that thought sort of live in suspended animation for a second, um, I want to uh, explore what the Bible uh, says about this because there's a real lack of clarity in a lot of our minds about what the Bible says. And then I do want to come back and um, pick up this thought of, uh, of which side of the justice equation we find ourselves on. So firstly then, um, let me look at the Messiah as judge in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament, the bit of the Bible that comes before Jesus, um, the Old Testament prophesied that the coming Messiah, the anointed one who speaks and acts for God, would be the judge of the world. Here is uh, an extremely important passage from that Old Testament. Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the family name of King David. So it's a descendant of King David. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Here and in many other uh, Old Testament passages we could look at, judgment is about righting wrongs. It's about bringing justice uh, for the needy, for, for the poor. And, and this is fundamental to the Bible's outlook on this whole topic. God is not a strict schoolmaster looking for naughty kids to punish. God is more like a zealous justice commissioner who wants to right the wrongs of the world, who wants to bring justice for all. God intends to bring justice for Tanja. And notice it's the Messiah uh, who will execute this justice. The passage is very clear. He will bring uh, decisions for the poor of the earth. It's the Messiah's role. And this is picked up in the New Testament as well. Secondly, then, the Messiah is judge in the New Testament. All of Jesus' apostles, those he appointed to speak on his behalf, uh, spoke about this theme of judgment and uh, that Jesus was the judge. Here is the Apostle Paul uh, in Romans 2. Uh, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Uh, here's the Apostle Peter. 
who preached shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus was seen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I love this passage in particular because it's got a nice balance between the theme of judgment and the promise of forgiveness of sins for everyone who wants it. And these, these ideas have to be held in this beautiful um, tension. But notice also that Peter says he got this from Jesus. He's adamant that Jesus commanded us to preach and testify that he is the one God has appointed as judge. The church in the later centuries didn't invent this idea of the judgment. Um, even though the church has made terrible mistakes, this idea comes from the apostles and the apostles got it from Jesus himself. And you know, even secular scholars, this whole shelf here, um, this whole bookcase here is historical Jesus uh, scholarship. Uh, secular scholars agree that this theme of judgment is authentic uh, to the historical Jesus. There's no avoiding it. Here is um, Dale Allison, who's one of the leading uh, secular scholars of the last uh, 20, 30 years. He wrote, given that so many people nowadays dislike hell, but like Jesus, it is not surprising that some modern reconstructions no longer depict him as a believer in future punishment. One could here be cynical and wonder to what extent the wish has cultivated the conclusion, a conclusion that certainly goes against the impression that the Gospels leave. He's, of course, saying that, you know, it's a temptation uh, amongst scholars, but also the general population to just project onto Jesus our preferences or at least leave aside, you know, parts of the Jesus story that we just don't happen to like. But when we do that, we're really just letting our wish uh, be fulfilled in our picture of Jesus. The historical Jesus preached judgment. And today's reading is a perfect example. Matthew chapter 25, a passage really clear about Jesus as the judge, but also really clear about the criterion, the reason uh, for judgment. When the Son of Man, that's Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, which turns out not just to be a royal throne, but a judicial throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. In other words, all injustice, whether ancient Rome or the Czech Republic or Sydney, will be brought to justice. And he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So there's a distinction between people. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And on it goes. So the sheep enter the kingdom. But then the goats hear these terrible words. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, 
you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat and so on. Now the word fire here is of course a metaphor. But like all metaphors, it's a metaphor of something real. Um, just as the sheep and the goats are metaphors, but they're metaphors for something real. The fire is a, a metaphor of God's justice coming, God's judgment. And this parable, despite its imagery, is making clear that God will divide humanity and there will be some who miss out on the goal of eternity, the goal of human life. They'll be excluded from God's kingdom. And notice again in this passage the reason for the judgment, the criterion of judgment. It is injustice. It is neglecting the poor, the hungry, uh, the thirsty, the oppressed. Refusing to care for them is at least one of the major uh, criteria of God's final judgment. And the thing is, this is exactly what the Old Testament promised in, say, Isaiah 11, that the Messiah comes to bring judgments on behalf of the poor of the earth. Judgment isn't a theological scare tactic designed to make us more religious. It is God's pledge to wounded humanity that he hears our cry for justice and will bring his justice to bear on every evil act. God will bring justice for Tanja. He'll bring, bring justice uh, for the poor that we've neglected. Um, justice for the refugees we shun. For the victims of church abuse. For those we tread down to get where we want to go in life. If I can put it like this, the degree to which we have participated in injustice, in lack of love, in coldness of heart, the degree to which we've taken part in all of that will be the degree to which we will be held accountable. We won't all receive the same judgment. Sure, God is just. There are plenty of passages uh, from Jesus' lips and elsewhere where he makes clear that there are different levels of judgment. I don't think it's right to think of different layers of hell or anything like that, but certainly different experiences of the um, judgment and justice of God. I once asked uh, a bunch of um, year 10s out at Campbelltown High School to imagine their life, every thought, word and deed, on a film. And that this film was about to be shown uh, to everyone. And you, you could see the squirms in the room. And then I said, well, what if God knew this film? God saw this film of everything you've done, said and thought, and decided to hold it against you. There was this young man sitting toward the back of the auditorium who didn't know he was sitting right near my wife. And he mumbled under his breath, I'd be stuffed. Now, it's not the most... Um, theologically articulate way of putting it, um, but it's instinctively right. If God saw everything we've done, said and thought and decided to hold it against us. 
I mean, imagine our every thought, word, and deed laid bare for everyone to see. That ambitious fantasy we keep to ourselves, that sexual encounter online or in reality, the lie we hope is never found out, the sharp word we can never put back in the box, the middle-class niceness we put on to sort of cover the resentments and envy, the dollars we crave and spend to the neglect of those in need, or the good deeds we hope other people will notice as kind of cover for what's really going on. Imagine if I pressed play on all of that. What is that feeling, that sense of shame or guilt? Is it just an ailment that, you know, just needs a bit of counselling and we'll be fine? Or is it a rational intuition that we hardly live up to our own standards, let alone the Almighty's? A rational intuition that there is some objective standard that finds us all falling short. If God held each one of us accountable for every thought, word and deed that is contrary to justice, contrary to love, who of us could say that we stand on the right side of the justice equation? Who of us could say that we don't need the forgiveness the Apostle Peter promised? And everyone who believes in Christ receives forgiveness of sins. And even our key passage, which is sort of primarily about the judgment of God, strikes the same theme. See, no sooner does Jesus speak there in verse 46 of eternal punishment, then we read in the very next lines, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus doesn't warn of judgment without assuring us that his real mission isn't to judge but it is to die on our behalf so that we wouldn't face the judgment. I mean, just as the Passover lamb um, was sacrificed in Jewish tradition um, as the bearer of judgment so that the judgment of God falls on the lamb instead of uh, on the people, the judgment of God passes over the people and onto the lamb. In, in the same way, Jesus taught that he was giving his own life for us so that we might escape this eternal fire, this eternal punishment. He gave himself for us precisely so that we might escape this judgment. The key then to thinking about this whole theme, as awkward as it is, is to hold in mind that the judge is also the saviour. Judy came uh, 
to believe this, actually, in the weeks before she died. It wasn't easy for her. Um, it, it remained incredibly difficult to get out of her head the picture of the preacher who preached judgment and hell with a smile on his face. But she did replace that awful image with the image of Jesus Christ. In Christ, she saw someone who preached judgment as the promise of justice, who preached judgment with tears in his eyes. And more than that, who gave himself to bear into himself the judgment we deserve so that we might all experience the forgiveness that was really at the heart of his mission.